Hey, we're going to jump in today. There's a lot to talk through, so I'm just going to have you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 to 9. If you are new here, my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC, and we are in the midst of a series out of the book of Ephesians, which Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. And we chose this particular uh, part of scripture to teach through since September because it teaches how under Christ and the good news of his work on the cross, how it brings unity to that which, humanly speaking, is usually broken. And, and Christ divide, causes all those divisional barriers to go away under the gospel for those who receive his work in their lives. And so we believe that's a necessary message, especially today when there's plenty of division uh, out there in culture that we often read about and experience. And so we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read starting in verse 5. It says, Slaves... Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. All right, so I'm just going to acknowledge that in the, in the Bibles that are in your lap or the app you are using, uh, you're going to find different translations, and you might see the term, instead of slaves, you might see bondservant or servant. Uh, and then, depending again on translation with the term master, you might see the term master or the term lord. Uh, contextually speaking, there is no doubt that this is referring to slaves and masters in regards to somebody who is under the ownership or they are bonded to uh, somebody and their will is now no longer, they must respond to that person. So it is talking about slavery and masters. And so I uh, just want to make sure that we're clearly understanding that uh, in this text, you cannot, it cannot be escaped. This is talking about something that is, uh, for us, seems historical and maybe not so much applicable. Although, because some translations have chosen to make it servant, and then they would say to master, you might receive it as a person uh, that's an employee to boss. And there's principles certainly to gather from that, and we will go there this morning. But I need to address what is implied in this text, where it leads to a question that maybe each of us might be thinking in this moment. Does the Bible advocate for slavery or does it condemn it? It's a fair question. The Bible talks about slavery. There's a lot of rules abounding with slavery. But does it advocate for it or does it condemn it? Does it condone it or does it condemn it? Well, the answer to that question is this. The Bible does not explicitly license or condemn it. 
It doesn't advocate for it. It doesn't establish like you must set up slavery. But it also doesn't say stop slavery. However, in the scriptures, you're going to find that the Bible gives guidelines, laws, and rules to both slave owner and also to slave that is there to protect human dignity. Now, in order to understand those laws and those rules about slavery that are found in scripture, even such passages that I just read, you need to understand that culturally speaking and contextually speaking, there are multiple types of slavery at that time when scriptures were being written. So, those types were captives, Many of them were captives either because they were a part of some kind of of war and battle and they were taken captive as part of that and then forced into serving those that uh, that had conquered them. It's also true that they they were captives that were because of some family unit had harmed another family unit and as part of making things right, there was a captive taken from out of one family and given to another to make things go peaceful. So there was captives, but there were also fugitives. Some came in from other countries and and were seeking protection. And so they would say, enslave themselves into a household so that they could find protection from wherever they were running from. There was also indebted slavery. Some people owed such a debt to people that they would give themselves over to the person that, that they were indebted to. And for, and according to scripture rules, up to six years, they would serve that family unit as a slave in order to pay for the indebtedness. But in the scripture, does it ever say, stop it when it comes to slavery? Or does it say, create it, keep it going? Well, that's a fair question to ask. And again, all we can see here is that when you look at the biblical text about slavery itself, that there are many, many laws that were created for the sake of protecting human dignity. All the laws you're going to see about slavery are about protecting human beings from being harmed in this human construct called slavery. So let me talk about the final parts of the different types of slavery. Because there's blood slavery, where you're born into a home where your parents were both slaves. And so you become slave because of who your parents were. But then there was sex slavery, where you were used for the sake of creating pleasure for the sake of others. This was both men and women were treated as sex slaves. And then there was kidnapping type of slavery, where people were taken, not because of a war, not because of a battle, not because there was any harm done between family units, but were taken for the sake of monetary gain, for the sake of investing in the idea of, of increasing your household and your footprint in all the business affairs. The scripture does condemn such things as sex slavery and kidnap slavery. Let me have you turn. We're just going to read a single verse, but I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 21. We're going to read verse 16. Exodus 21, we're going to read verse 16. 
And the reason why I want you to see it with your own eyes is because this form of slavery connects to our history more so than any other form of slavery. And I want you to see what God has to say about that. Verse 16, Exodus 21. Anyone, anyone who knips kidnaps someone who is to be put is to be put to death whether they are the, the victim has been sold or still is in the kidnapper's possession again let me say anyone who kidnaps someone is to be put to death whether the victim has been sold or is still in the kidnapper's possession now when you go from out of the hebrew on that you'll see in some translations it highlights the fact that not only is the person who kidnaps, but someone who has bought a slave that has been kidnapped is to be put to death. It's a criminal offense in God's eyes. In fact, it's a capital offense. There is death that is to be given to the person who kidnaps a person out of their life and their family and puts them into slavery for the sake of money or personal gain that person and the person who purchases it enables that whole system is worthy of death according to God, period. So when you look at all that the Bible has to say about slavery, when you look at all the rules that are found in Deuteronomy and then the rules that you find in Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians when referring to slaves, it's speaking into relationships that were within the households because these slaves lived in the households with these families. It was not the same type of slavery, or at least it was rarely the same type of slavery that we saw here in the United States. It was a different kind. They were part of the households and there were rules given because in the same way abuse could happen in those relationships. And God was about protecting the one most vulnerable. But given the whole context of scripture, you will not find that God says there should be slavery and you will not find what God's saying, get rid of it. But you will see what God feels about it, thinks about it, and is established is different from anything you're gonna see in this human construct we call slavery. For example, the book of Philemon alone highlights that there is something different about the heart of God in regards to slavery than what we are often taught it culturally within even our own context historically. You see, Philemon was a man that had been led to Christ that looks like he was led to Christ by Paul and became a leader in the church, even hosted church, guided the church, but was discipled and tutelaged under Paul and then sometime later, while Paul was in chains, a runaway slave from Philemon's household makes it into Paul's prison cell as a servant, as a helper. And that, that person's name is Onesimus. Onesimus became such an important part of Paul's life that at some point, Paul's like, you really need to go back to Philemon. Imagine that conversation. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He had gotten free. He's now been serving his, the, Paul. His life has been changed. And Paul says, you know, you really should go back. But I'm going to send a letter with you. 
The letter of Philemon is that letter. Onesimus takes it. And in that letter, you have a tremendous amount of understanding to what the gospel, the good news of what Christ is going to do in human relationships that is helping a slave owner and a slave look at the relationship differently. So Philemon was told by Paul, I love you. I have great memories of you. Let me remind you of all the things I've invested in your life. Let me remind you of what Christ has done in your life. And let me tell you about what your runaway slave, Onesimus, has been to my life. Then he puts it out there. I want you to now treat him as a brother or sister. I want you to actually treat him as if I was the one coming back to your household. And if he owes you anything, so perhaps his slavery was due to indebted slavery, then consider that my charge, and I will pay for it. And by the way, Anesimus, or Philemon, you owe me more than any debt that that possibly could be. And then he says, I am confident that you will do the right thing. Wink, 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 wink. What was Paul trying to say? Philemon, in Christ he no longer has to be a slave. But for the sake of your heart, Philemon, I want you to come to that conclusion and do it out of the willfulness of your heart, not under me mandating it for you. You're gonna see that in scripture that, that God was always caring for the downtrodden and slaves were part of that. And then when Jesus comes and, and he is creating his church, what does he do? He heals both slave and free. He does both. And he ministers to both slave and free. And he also addresses all people groups regardless of what their nationality was. Christ didn't see things the way those that were around him saw that. He was criticized for who he hung out with. He was criticized for speaking to Gentiles. He was criticized for hanging out with those who had been rejected by society, tax collectors and sinners. He was criticized for actually extending his grace and his power to slaves. Why would you do that? Because apparently God saw things way differently than human beings. So let me bring this a little bit more closer to home in our own history. So the American history of legalized slavery really began in, in 1525 and to, through the years of 1866. In that span of time, there were 12.5 million Africans kidnapped from their homes. 12.5 million stolen from their homes and shipped around the world. These Africans were not a threat to Europe. They were not a threat to the North. They were doing life as they had done life for generations. And then northerners or westerners came in and they realized that we can, they are easy pickings because they don't have the weaponry we do. And so we can take them and we can then make our institutions grow upon their backs. Of those 12 and a half million Africans that were stolen from their homes, nearly 2 million died at sea. 388,000 of them arrived on the North American shores, which means that you have 10 million that have gone to other parts of the world. It wasn't just to North America. So only 388,000 arrived on North American shores. In the 19, in 1860 U.S. Census, so this is American records, 
The population of America in 1860, the beginning of the Civil War, was 31.4 million. At that time, of that 31.4 million, 3.9 million were African slaves. More than 10% of our entire nation's population. So just as you understand that in 1860, things are about to change. But we have to understand what was going on in that time that creates confusion about Scripture. Because at that time, the church, while intact and not separated based on this issue, they saw things very differently based on where they lived. Because in the Baptist church alone, which was the, one of the largest evangelical uh, movements at that time in America, if you were in the Northern Baptist Church or in the North side of things, whether you're Presbyterian, Baptist, or Episcopalian, or Lutheran, you saw slavery as evil. You could be in some of those same denominations and be in the South, and they would say that it was condoned by Scripture and necessary and essential or just part of life. How is that possible? Both sides, the North and the South, both taught that the Bible gave them permission to think as they thought. How did they get there? How is that even possible? One condoned, one condemned. It came to a head in 1846 for the church, and that's when the Baptist church separated and became Southern Baptist and Northern Baptist over this issue in the view of Scripture. Now, for some in that Southern Baptist church, they would say, we're not saying one way or the other from biblically, but it's a part, it's just how life is. You can read these things. They're accessible to read what was being said in the Southern church at that time. And then in the Northern church, what was being said at that time. But let me explain something and appreciate the moment. Imagine your sons and daughters as 18-year-olds, 16-year-olds, hearing their friends say, well, my church says that the Bible says that slavery is condoned. While the other one says, well, my church and Bible says it's condemned. Imagine how disillusioning that season in the church was. So what you have here is that the northern and southern churches are advocating their position from Scripture. I believe that when you get into Scripture, you're going to find that there is no way you can condone slavery from a godly, divine principle. It is a human construct. You're going to find from Scripture today that it condemns slavery. But for those who are in our history, that even my spiritual heritage comes from, there was a disillusionment that was created and it harmed the church, it harmed the gospel, and it harmed the nation. How is this even possible? How is this possible that churches could say, no, it's advocating for it, God has created it? Well, let me tell you, if money is involved, money has a way of changing the lens and the filtering and the discernment of our eyes and our heart more than we give its credence to do so. What does Jesus say? The love of money 
is the root of all evil. It's the root of all evil. And so if money is involved and your livelihood, I mean, imagine your livelihood is tied into the institution of legalized slavery, then you're, not, you're either, if you see the Bible as saying, no, it's not really for it, you're going to just simply dismiss that and ignore it. Or you're going to go to it and it's like, well, it's got a lot of rules on how to make sure we do it right. So therefore, it implies it's right. Forget the fact that they were violating the very thing we just read out of Exodus. These slaves were rooted out of kidnapping, and those who did so were worthy of death according to God. This wasn't indebted slavery. This wasn't a conquered nation type of slavery. This was a horrific type of slavery that God was on record for, for saying it's worthy of death if you institute it. Now the question is, how is this possible? Love of money. That's how it's possible. We even today will dismiss heirs in the church if money's connected. We'll dismiss heirs in each other's lives if money's connected. It goes there. We justify our actions based on our livelihood and how we can continue to do things the way we're doing them. And money blinds us. Does this still exist? This idea of, of slavery being condoned by the Bible. And the answer is yes. It still exists. In fact, I am concerned about the current narrative that is going on with the racial tensions. I get that the racial tensions have gone off the rails in the sense of what are the solutions. I wish all of you would have come to our Wednesday nights in January because we're reacting to the solutions, the secular realm that does not consider God as part of the solution. We're reacting to the godless solutions and as part of reacting to godless solutions, we are finding ourselves becoming angered and more racistly viewed. We're missing out on what God is actually saying in Scripture. I reject the secularist idea of fixing our racial problems. I'm not condoning those things. But we must be careful that we don't unintentionally start supporting that which is not upon God's heart. So how do I, can I say, this still exists? Let me tell you a very specific moment that happened in my life. And for me, this does not seem that long ago. But for some of you, it's a long time ago or even before you were born. But in 1990, while I was a college student at a Baptist university that was very diverse university, it was about 25% uh, other and 75% white. And it was a very harmonious school. The school did really well at teaching, I believe, the biblical values of all people being created equal in the eyes of God. But there are vestiges sometimes that are still infiltrated into the center of that. And I was invited into a mentoring relationship with a man who was in the administration of that, of that institution. And he was discipling like a dozen of us we were getting into the scripture together. We were asking a lot of questions and, and, and diving in. And this, this man was godly. He taught us well. And then one of them explained a moment that happened in their dorm where they saw overt racism happen. And somebody yelled out to another individual something that was involving slavery. 
I reacted to the story immediately saying, God would never condone that. That is not, slavery is such evil. To which my mentor stopped me immediately and corrected me and says, I disagree. And then he goes on to teach all of these young men that he believes the Bible condones and that this is part of God's plan. I'd like to tell you, I admitted to uh, Joel earlier, unfortunately that's not my only story, but that's the only one I'm gonna share now. The church is not clean on this issue. Christ is, the Bible is, God is, but the church has not been. And so we have to understand that in the scriptures, we have to be careful to not take implications and assume we've got it understood. I just shared with you multiple forms of slavery that if you were to see how those were operated, you would see that they are operating almost as a son or daughter in a household. Because that's where these slaves were living. They were part of the family unit, but they were bound to be there. But they were often, more often than not, treated as family members. That's not the type of slavery that experienced here under the permission of many churches. Not all, but many. So what we need to understand is that the church under the gospel of Jesus Christ, so going back to Ephesians, going back to the New Testament, that under the gospel, things are different from how the world sees them. So let's just walk this out really quick. God created all people in his image. Anybody gonna argue with me on that? We all agree God created every human being in his image and that we are all created. And this is going into Ephesians chapters one and two. Are we not all created equal in inheritance, favor, standing, and liberty as part of the family of God? Anybody wanna argue with me on that? And as part of that church and family, we are all created with unique responsibilities and roles to serve each other at church and at home. And that all people, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or social standing, will be standing and declaring that Jesus is Lord in the end of time. Oh, come on, I gotta hear more than one amen. Do you realize, if you've got hangups, I don't know what has caused any of your, your angst maybe in this moment as we're talking this issue. We all have history. We all have history where this might be uncomfortable. But let me help you for a moment. You are going to, if you are a child of God, you are gonna be spending eternity with people that look very different from you and grew up very different from you, but are gonna call upon the same saving grace and the same saving Lord as you do. And so if we can appreciate that end game and then realize that let's get as best as we can used to the idea that you, because of whoever you are, is not greater than another, then we will come into eternity not being so surprised, but embracing what we see. Galatians chapter three, verses 26 to 29 says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. All of you, through Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, not into some kind of ethnic group 
or people group, but into Christ. And you have clothed yourselves with Christ. And there is neither Jew nor Gentile. So no ethnicity that might divide. And there was anger between Jew and Gentile. Neither slave nor free. That was about whether or not your standing was where it was at in society. It's like, no, one who might be seen as greater is, is not greater. That you're equal. And then male or female, this is again about a contention of roles because often in the male and female role, males use their headship to lord over rather than to build up and instruct and to esteem as what we're given in scripture. So all the things that could cause breakage in human relationships, in Christ, it says, there is none of that for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All of you are firstborns. All of you are heirs. We have to understand that that's how God sees things, not through our human lenses of brokenness that might say, I am greater than you, or this group is greater than another group. Or because you're this way, I am better than you. Like, it just destroys all of that. So despite human brokenness, all those found in Christ will be enjoying this eternity together without any of our presuppositions or hindrances. Amen? I don't want to take my presuppositions from here into eternity. I want to lose those at the door. But I want to start losing them now. I want to start losing them now. So when we go into this text, let's look at what it means then in verse 5 and read this from the perspective of God's heart. So verse 5, chapter 6 of Ephesians, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as you are serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So in this, you have a context of what we've heard in chapter four, where it says, we are called to walk as Christ did. Let's walk in the freedom that Christ provides. And then it talks about that how in the church that we're walking together, we're serving each other, we're using our unique gifts with each other. And then it comes down and gets it even more personal as it starts talking about the household. Because slaves and masters is the third entity of the household. It begins with, Husbands and wives in chapter 5. And then the beginning of chapter 6, parents and children. And now it's masters and slaves. They're all part of the household, the relational world that these people did every day. And what is the Greek term for that? Great. Now, if you're new here, let me just explain. These people are not proficient in Greek, at least most of them. But we've been teaching that oikos is that biblical term. It's that Greek term that is used to describe the relational world by where people care what you have to say. And so in this relational world, husbands and wives do care for what each other say. Parents and children do care for what each other says. And people that are in a authoritative or those who are under authority are in a relationship. And we do have influence on each other. And that's where God can do his greatest work. 
is when there's a relationship. And so as you can see, that, that in our oikos, a relational world, we have friends, we have neighbors, we have relatives, we, we have people we're, we're in academics alongside of. But work and where we work and where those relationships are are also a place of great influence. But in this text, we're told that the primary aim in all these relationships is to glorify and proclaim Christ. Whether it be husband and wife, parents and children, slave or master, church as a whole, we're to proclaim and glorify Christ in all those relationships. And this is accomplished by living out Christ in those relationships. And so these principles are meant to be applied in whatever context there is where there is somebody in authority and somebody who is under authority, which describes most of us here in this room, that you're either one of authority of which people report to you or are under you, or you yourself are under somebody's authority. And so we need to apply these principles because this is about proclaiming Jesus. And so that's why he says, slaves, you're under authority. You have an earthly master. So show respect, fear, and sincerity. That's an attitude. Show respect, fear, and sincerity. And the reason why that sincerity term is there is because it's, you can show respect to somebody and you might be able to fear their position, acknowledge their authority, but inside you're meanwhile cursing them wishing them failure. And what God says, no. I want you to respect them. I want you to fear them, honor their authority, and to do it from the sincerity of your heart. And then you get into the approach side of it. He says, model Christ in your work with this master over you, whether the master sees it or does not. In other words, as it says in the beginning of verse 6, it says, Obey them not only when, to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Which means that sometimes their eye is not on you. But Christ's eye is always on you. So when you're working, you as a person under authority should be treating somebody who is an authority over you with respect, fear, and sincerity. And you should work as, as to the Lord for them, whether they can see it or not. And that your motive should be at the end of verse 6 where we serve Christ out of a heart that is going to be pleasing God. It pleases God when we serve Christ. So when we serve somebody in authority, we're serving as if that person is Christ himself. And then by serving these supervisors or these people in authority, we do so at verse 7. It says, with a wholeheartedness. We're all in on it. We're not in part. Well, Okay, I'll show some respect. I'll show some fear. I'll try to be sincere about it. Yes, I'll work even when they're not looking at me. Yes, I'll do it while they're seeing me. And I'll do this to try to please God. No, it's all in. Wholeheartedly, all in. Because, in verse 8, what does it say? It says, because you know, you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. So in other words, we do everything to please the Lord and see our reward from him, not our earthly masters. If this is about people pleasing, you're gonna get very frustrated because some of your bosses, you could treat them with absolute kindness and they're still jerks. <laughs> they just are. 
And, and yet it says here, you're not doing it for their reward. You're doing it for Christ's reward, God's reward of you. Now, going on, verse 9, what does it say to the master? Treat your slaves in the same way. Treat them in the same way. So in other words, the same rules apply. Masters, leaders, business leaders, business owners, supervisors, you should treat those that are underneath your authority with respect, with fear, and sincerity of heart. That you should model Christ before them when they can see you and model Christ when they cannot see you. And that you should be doing so because you are serving Christ and you're a Christ's ambassador with those who work underneath you. And that you're all in. You're not in part. You're not just like punching a ticket. It's like, well, this is what I do to make money. No, you're all in. This is about Christ being magnified in your life and for the sake of the lives that report to you. And to re remember, it's not for your own reward. It's not for bonuses at the end of the year. It is for the sake of receiving God's favor. Now, in verse 9, not only are masters to be the same as slaves in their attitudes, their approaches, their motives and perspectives and outcomes, but there is an additional charge to the master and the leader, and that is this, do not threaten them. So when you are a person of authority, those that are underneath your authority should not feel threatened by you. In other words, when you look at this, it says do not threaten. It's basically do not make it unsafe for them to be under your authority. Do not make it harmful for them in their character, their esteem, their dignity as a human being. Do not make it difficult for them to thrive in those things while being under your authority. But instead, it should be that that person's dignity as a human being, their understanding of who they are should thrive under you and that they can feel safe to grow under your leadership, not feeling threatened by your leadership. That's a pretty significant charge to a boss, isn't it? But in the end of the day, why does God say this? And this is where I would say, if you think the Bible condones slavery, you're missing out on the things that are being said throughout the text. Because here is where it clearly condemns. Do not threaten them. Why? Because you know that he, God, who is both their master and yours, is in heaven. And with him, there is no favoritism. There is no partiality. So, so basically stating that slavery is a human construct built out of brokenness among human beings. God gave us the law so that we could protect those who are downtrodden and who are slaves to make sure that their dignity is not robbed from them. In the same way, God gives rules to marriage. And there are rules to how divorce can be done. But God hates divorce. But he gives those rules so that divorce would not be used as a weapon against the most vulnerable in those marriages. God doesn't say, I am for divorce, and then gives all the rules. No, he says, I hate divorce, but I'm going to give you all these rules. God has already declared he loves people. He loves human beings. He created them in his image. He created them for relationship with him. And then human beings started enslaving each other. So he gives rules so that there could be protection for the most vulnerable. 
But let's bring it back to the gospel because this is, again, about Christ and what he's done on the cross. And it says, you know, so we got to be careful how we treat those under our authority so that because we know that God does not show partiality like human beings do. He doesn't. But in the overall context of this, Jesus is the game changer. Jesus is the game changer for healing that which has damaged human relationships. Slavery is damaging human relationships. Even as we speak, where it's an illegal form of slavery that is happening throughout the world with human trafficking. It's evil. But Jesus changes the game. Why do I say that? The law in the Old Testament that speaks to what we just said. God says you're worthy of death and you should die if you kidnap someone and sell them into slavery. And the one who buys that slave should also die. That's how God feels about it, period. Here's how if you have slaves because of indebtedness, make sure you treat them well. There's even rules to the person who's born into slavery to make sure that they're protected. But all those rules, what they do not do is they do not fix anything. They also don't heal anything. But in the gospel, not only does the law protect and the gospel protect, but Jesus releases the prisoner and heals the victim. The law could never heal, but Jesus can. Which is why Jesus said, we must never forget as a church what gathers us all together under one banner of the cross. We must never forget, which is why communion is part of our regular practice as a church. What divided us has been, has been torn down by the work of the cross for our healing, for our restoration of relationships. Let's prepare our hearts for remembering that which broke down, that which divides and brings healing for us all. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, I acknowledge that if left to myself, I would be part of the system of continuing and perpetuating human brokenness. Because I am selfish, I am self-centered, just like every other human being. But under the cross, I am being confronted in my spirit. I am convicted in my soul to go a different way. And all that is because of the power of the cross. So in this moment, we receive that work. We're reminded of that work that heals where the law could not and protects beyond the law and gives us vision beyond the human constructs like slavery that continues to provide evil opportunities for human beings to destroy each other. Let's take some time to just lay bare before God our hearts on this matter, how we treated each other, where we continue to embrace brokenness between each other. Maybe we've treated somebody poorly in the workplace, whether it be our boss or our coworker. 
or somebody that works underneath us. Let's lay these things at the cross before we take communion together. Jesus, we acknowledge that the wall of hostility that is spoken of in Ephesians 1 and 2 was absolutely demolished by the work of the cross. That wall of hostility separates us from each other. And Lord, I'm not going to pretend. There's broken relationships probably in each of our lives. Might be a spouse, might be a friend, might be a neighbor, might be a coworker. Could we simply be an adversary Lord, we're going to cling to the cross in this moment where we can find healing and grace. Thank you, Jesus, for this tremendous work of grace that we can come under in this moment. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ as his, his being your Lord and Savior, then you're welcome to participate with us whether or not this is your church. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, just simply acknowledge him as the only bridge between you and God. Acknowledge you're a sinner that you can never perfect the way to God, that you're in need of his work. And make him Lord of your life. Give him the leadership of your life. And he promises to come in and then you join us as part of one family, one unit, all firstborns together. The night that Jesus was betrayed, with a very broken group of companions who were in argument with each other, still filled with pride, he looked at them and said, with this bread that was broken in his hands, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Regardless of qualifications, it's for you. Take this in remembrance of me. Let's do so together. Then later at that table, Jesus held up the cup that was in front of him. It's filled with fruit of the vine. And he said, this is my blood of a new covenant. All past sacrifices of animal sacrifices, their blood was all temporal. But this sacrifice, my blood, is sufficient for all time. Take this, recognizing we're under grace. Let's do so together. Thank you, Jesus, because we could not have paid off our debt. We'd be enslaved to our final breath. No amount of years could have paid it off but you did in one single moment. 
we receive that, Lord, and we're grateful because we are liberated prisoners. And now we get to be slaves to you, to the kind master, a loving Lord. Amen. Let's stand together and sing and celebrate the freedom that's been bought and paid for in Christ.
I'm going to now apply this text in a way that I believe will be helpful for us all. I pray regularly for harvest. I have an alarm on my phone. Every day, 8.30, I pray for harvest. Harvest for the church. Not for the church to revive, because that's part of it, but for lost souls to come in to the church to find the grace of Christ. What if that harvest comes by a means we don't expect? Let me ask you three questions or three groupings of questions that might cause your lens to change a little bit. What if our goal as employees was to lead our boss to Jesus? What would change in your approach to your job and those you work with? If your goal as an employee, was to lead your boss to Jesus? What if your goal as a business owner, a business leader, or supervisor was to lead to Jesus those who reported to you? What would change in your approach and how you lead if that was your goal? Could the next harvest begin in the workplace? If so, how would that change your prayers? You see, the workplace may be where you give the most amount of time in your work week. Think about it, 40 hours? How much time are you working alongside of spouses that way? Or children, or relatives, or friends, or neighbors? Your workplace is where a lot of life is done. And if as employees, we were thinking about how we can lead our boss to Jesus, or if we're the boss, how we could lead our employees to Jesus, if that was our end game, it would probably change the work environment for you and for them. Now I recognize not everything's gonna get received well. That's just part of human brokenness. But remember, our reward is not to find favor with mankind, it's to find favor with God. So I encourage you, to be bold and courageous. Maybe taking on a different attitude, different spirit where you work. If you have been in a place where you feel like I just need to pray with someone because I've got, I've got a lot of influence with some employees and I need a lot of heart change in order for me to think like that. We have people in the encounter room that would be glad to pray with you. Or maybe you're the employee and you're like, but you don't know my boss. Well, that's cool because Jesus can do it. Whatever that boss is, they might have horns and a pitchfork, but they need Jesus. And if you give yourself diligent to, diligently to that, you never know what God might do. 
So church, be encouraged, be charged that the human constructs we deal with are not God's ways. We look to God to find his ways. Don't let the love of money cause you to behave differently than what is God's ways. Let him guide you. Reflect Christ in all you do wholeheartedly and let him do the rewarding. Amen. You are dismissed.